Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, March 16th, we are studying Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 22. Jesus continues his Holy Week preaching in parables before he is confronted by a trap, a trap that is laid by the Pharisees concerning the matter of paying taxes to Caesar. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor James Preuss. Pastor Preuss serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. As we get started this morning, Pastor Preuss, give us some context here in Matthew's Gospel. We're starting chapter 22 today. What do we need to know going in? Well, this happens during Holy Week. Uh, I think it's pretty clear from the the context of chapter 21 uh, and how it picks up in 22 that this is, I think it's Monday. So Jesus uh, enters Jerusalem uh, with his triumphal entry with people waving palm branches and putting their, their coats down before his donkey, cheering Hosanna uh, to the son of David, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, Jesus cleanses the temple. Uh, he goes into the temple and children are crying Hosanna to the son of David, and uh, the, uh, the Jewish leaders uh, rebuke him, uh, rebuke them and tell him to rebuke the, the, the children. And Jesus says, uh, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and babes? You have to pray, praise. And then he, he leaves. And then he, come, uh, he goes to Bethany, uh, which is just a couple miles away from, from uh, Jerusalem. And then he comes back the next day. And that's, that's what we're, we're, we're dealing with now. He gets, comes back the next day. Uh, he goes to the temple. His authority gets challenged. And then he starts. There's this back and forth uh, uh, between Jesus and the, fair, the, the chief priests and the elders. It, it says elders and then also Pharisees. Um, and uh, he, he, he's challenging them. They, they challenge him on his authority. Uh, there, there's that uh, well-known passage where he then asks them about John's baptism, if that was from heaven or not, and they won't answer. So he says, well, I won't answer you either, which kind of indicates that, yes, it is. The author- uh, uh, he, his authority is from heaven itself, from God, the Father himself. Uh, and then he starts asking, he, he tells a story about the two uh, sons. Uh, a father asks two sons to go and work for him, and one says yes, but then he doesn't do it. The other says no, and he, doesn't, and he does do it. And then Jesus finishes by saying that, the tax collectors and prostitutes will enter into uh, heaven be the kingdom of God before you. Um, so he really is just kind of pounding these chief priests and Pharisees. Uh, he's getting more and more, um, I guess, less guarded, less, I mean, I don't know if Jesus ever was very guarded in how he spoke to them, uh, but he, he's, he's really condemning them. And of course, in uh, later on, uh, chapter 23, that's where he starts saying woe to them. Uh, he, chapter 21 ends with Jesus telling a parable about tenants. And this is like, these are the worst tenants you could ever imagine. Because uh, after the, the master of the house builds this vineyard and everything, and he put, gives it to the tenants, and when he wants his fruit, he sends servants, and they, they beat them and kill them, and then he finally sends his son, and then he kills them. And then he asks them, what, well, what will the master do? And they say, well, certainly he's going to kill those terrible those people and, and give the vineyard to someone else. And then Jesus uh, says, well, you know, this is about you. Uh, he, or he, he gives the indication by, by quoting uh, the psalm, the stones of the builders rejected shall be the chief cornerstone. So chapter 21 ends with chief priests and the Pharisees perceiving that this parable that Jesus just told is about them, meaning that the vineyard is Israel or Jerusalem. And those who are in charge of the tenants, these chief priests and the Pharisees and such, and they're the ones who have rejected the prophets and rejected God, and now they're going to kill his son, uh, and God is going to reject them and give, their, and give the kingdom of God to someone else. Um, and they, they, they realize this is about him, and they want to arrest him, but they're afraid of the crowd. 
So you can kind of see this is the setting that we have, that Jesus has just already told a, a parable that, that, that they think is, is, is justifiable for them to kill him. And, but then they're afraid to lay hands on him yet. They're looking for an opportunity. So then Jesus says, well, this is a perfect opportunity to tell another parable against them that is going to condemn them for their wickedness. And, and that's where we pick up here. This, this parable the, the, of the wedding feast very much uh, is a judgment against the chief priests and the Pharisees and all those who think that they belong in the kingdom of, of God, and yet they reject the kingdom of God. Yeah, we're we're in this we're in the middle of this back and forth between Jesus and his opponents, and today's text is going to give us a, a bit of both. We're going to get one of one of Jesus' parables against them, and then another and an attempt to come back at Jesus. We'll see in the second part of our text. First comes this parable, the wedding feast, as, as you called it, Pastor Price. One of the the conversations that we've had multiple times here on Sharper Iron during this series in, in Matthew is concerning the title of parables, and, and so we give we give titles to parables as a, a shorthand way of referring to that them, and that that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes, though, a, a parable's title might lend an emphasis to a part of the parable that that maybe isn't the main point. So, for example, the the parable of the unforgiving servant really emphasizes that particular aspect, and maybe it doesn't remind us of the forgiving king, who is who is certainly in the center of the parable. So, with with that in mind, Pastor Price, and this is maybe one that's not as as big of a uh, an issue, perhaps. But but what do you think of the title, the the parable of the wedding feast? Is does that help us in terms of the emphasis of the parable? Uh, that's an interesting question. You know, I I <clears throat> I don't think it's a bad um, I don't think it's a bad title, actually. Um, I mean, the, the subject, obviously, is uh, the master and, and his will. And you can see his will is that he wants everyone to come to this wedding feast. He's done a lot of work in preparing for it. Uh, and uh, so I suppose you could, if you want to have a different name, you could talk about the, um, the generous master. Or, uh, but, of course, he also has the wrath, the, his wrath. Um, and, uh, but, but I think, I think the wedding feast is actually a pretty good name simply because it talks a lot more of the action. Um, in the beginning of this parable, he talks about things being prepared and he actually lists things, right? So he talks about, you know, the, the dinner is prepared, my oxen, my fat and calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. And it shows really what Jesus means and what St. John the Baptist means and what the disciples mean when they say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, what does the kingdom of heaven is at hand mean? Well, it means that, you know, the feast is, is just about ready. Uh, and what that means is that the, uh, the sacrifice and the meal is being prepared. It's going to be ready very soon. Uh, so get ready and come. Um, so the... The, the marriage feast, there's it, 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 a bunch of mixed metaphors. So you have to be careful how, with any of these parables. I mean, because obviously the wedding feast um, is for his son, which is Christ, and he's, he's married to the church. Uh, but then also what is prepared, the, the meal is Christ himself, too. So I, I do think that, um, I, think it's an, I think it's an okay name, actually. I don't know, maybe you have, yeah. you have a different thought on that. No, I, I, I don't. I, I, this, as I was reflecting on that question and, and the text for today, you know, this, this is one that I think the wedding feast is a helpful thing to focus on here. As, as you said, and, and we'll see in a moment when we read it, this matter of everything is ready, I, I really do find it to be a helpful title. And the reality is, we're going to give it a title, right? And, and, and that's going to focus us on that particular aspect, and that's fine. It's not bad. Just so that, uh, particularly in some others, as I've mentioned, right, the parable of the prodigal son is another one that, you know, focuses us on the son particularly. Well, there's two sons in that parable, right? So this one, I, I do think, I think you're right. So let's go ahead and, and take a look at the, the text then. We're going to read Matthew 22, beginning at verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. 
but they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here with a, without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. That's the text for today, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 22. So Pastor Preuss, the first part of the text is this parable of the wedding feast. There's, there's two scenes here, the, the first scene of those originally invited and their response, and then the second scene, the, the second invitation, those who come, and then this matter of the, the man who's got no wedding garment. At least that's, that's the way that I would, I would break it down. So maybe, maybe the way to start here is just sort of doing what you were starting to do already, Who's the king? Who's the the son? Who are the servants? And and those parts. Yeah. So the uh, the king is God, uh, God the Father, uh, uh, particularly. The son is God the Son, uh, Jesus Christ, and uh, the the bride, who isn't mentioned, but the bride is Christ. Uh, is is not Christ? I'm sorry. The bridegroom is is Christ. The uh, bride is the church as we've heard in many parts of Scripture, especially Ephesians chapter 5. So Christ is going to be united to his church. And as that great hymn says, From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Uh, so the, how is this wedding prepared? And this is where I talked about there being a, um, a mixing of metaphors, because the son is not only the bridegroom, he is also the, the meat and drink He's the, he is the prepared oxen, the prepared fattened calf uh, that is slaughtered and prepared. Um, so the way this wedding feast is prepared is that God has become man. Christ, the Son of God, uh, has, been, uh, has become man. He is about to be crucified. Uh, remember, this is uh, a very timely parable. Uh, this is uh, Holy Week. Uh, I just talked about how the, the Pharisees are ready to kill him. And Jesus is, I mean, I, I would never call Jesus smug because he is my Lord and God. Uh, but he, he does have this confidence where they want to kill him. And they can't yet. And Jesus knows they can't yet. So then he tells another parable. Uh, to, he shows that he's a complete control. But what I think what a lot of people don't uh, kind of think about is like, oh, well, because Jesus has a bunch of wins, you might say in these parables, not to get sidetracked, but he gets a bunch of winds, and they're silent. Like, at the end of this chapter, I mean, people just stop questioning him. And yet we have to remember, this is Monday. He's going to be arrested Thursday night, and he's going to be dead by the end of Friday on a cross. So, uh, but he knows that, and he intends that, and that's what this parable is about. He's really showing what he says in John chapter 10. Uh, this is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life for my sheep. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority uh, to raise it up again, this charge I've received from my Father. And that's really what he's talking about with this, this feast being ready and being prepared. And of course, you know, you have the servants being sent out to invite. Well, who are these servants? 
Well, John the Baptist, as I mentioned before, is definitely one of the servants. That's what why he he prepares the way before him, and they you see you know the the kingdom of heaven is is near. It's at hand. Uh, it's like you know the the roast is in the oven almost. I mean Jesus is already you know, he's being tempted by Satan already, um, and then uh, the apostles, you know the twelve that Jesus sends out, the seventy two, uh, the disciples who say hey the, the feast is ready, um, and then I think you can even say the prophets, the prophets, prophets are saying hey. Uh, they're the ones who, like, I guess, invited those invited before. They're not the ones saying, hey, the feast is ready. But they were the ones who gave the, the invitation. Um, the, I think the previous parable from, from uh, chapter 21, the end of chapter 21, that, that deals more with what, how the prophets were treated. Um, but anyway, but then it shows how they, they, they pay no attention. One goes off to his farm and to his business. These people who are invited are the Jews. So, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for the power of God to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Um, Jesus says to that poor Canaanite woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Um, not, I mean, there, there, there's a big discussion in those words, but he is sent first to Israel. He tells his disciples, go only to you know, the villages of, of Israel. Don't go to Samaria. Don't go to the Gentiles yet. You know, stay in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high, which happens on Pentecost. So uh, these Jewish leaders, these, the Jewish people, have the privilege of, of receiving the gospel first. And this is particularly addressed at the Jewish leaders. Um, people get uh, uncomfortable with the gospel of John because he always he speaks so critically of, of the Jews. Uh, I mean, this is just a figure of, of speech. I mean, not I don't want to say too much of, of uh, to just, this, uh, you know, um, this is, it's not completely that, but it's part, because there are lots of Jews who do believe. But the Jewish leaders, when he talks about the Jews hating Jesus, it's, mo- it's the Jewish leaders and the followers of the Jewish leaders. Um, and then, of course, those who then are uh, invited later on the main roads, all those, those would be those who are rejected by the uh, Jewish leaders. So, he mentioned before the tax collectors and the prostitutes, so sinners, people thought who aren't worthy, Samaritans, and really the Gentiles, which means nations, all nations, uh, including presumably us. And we're, uh, I mean, I don't know if I have any uh, much Jewish blood anyway. So uh, all nations are called uh, invited to this wedding feast, which is really faith in, in Christ uh, to partake in this meal. Uh, obviously you have... Uh, uh, hints at the sacrament there and, and such. So in in that, and I, I'm I'm with you on on the John the Baptist, the apostles being the primary servants here. I, I think the prophets are in view in the sense that not not so much in the sense that we saw them in the parable of the tenants, but they are in view in, in how many times Jesus addresses these religious leaders and he'll he'll ask them, "Haven't you read?" Right? So that they should have right. they should have believed in Jesus and they should have received the invitation to the wedding feast because they had the prophets, because they had read what the prophets had written, which was all that same preaching ahead of time. And so I think the prophets are, are the servants, at least in that sense as well. Now, now they don't receive this invitation. And, and this is where maybe the, the parable, at least as a, as a story, seems to be like, well, where did that come from? These, these people who are invited first receive the invitation they say thanks but no thanks they don't come and the king gets so angry that he sends his army out to de- to destroy these and that that's maybe where the story as a, as an account takes a bit of a turn that we're not expecting in in real life but what's the point that Jesus is getting at with this destruction of those who didn't come uh, at the first invitation well yeah i mean in one in a in a human sense you can see why a king would do that i mean if i sent out if I were a king and I sent out servants to invite people to a wedding and they killed my servants, then I would kill them. I mean, uh, maybe it's because I'm not a king. I don't know, but I would, I would, I would definitely want to uh, to punish them severely if, if I were doing a good deed to them, and then they killed uh, my servants who were coming to bring them good news. Uh, but this this is a is an actual prophecy that happened in real time. Uh, God destroyed Jerusalem. In the year 70 AD, he used uh, a pagan uh, uh, general named Titus to, to do it um, as, as his instrument. Uh, but he destroyed Jerusalem. He destroyed 
the city uh, or the uh, the temple, and uh, Jesus wept over the, this, this very week. Uh, later on, I think it's in chapter twenty-three. Uh, he he weeps over Jerusalem. I think it's after all the woes. Yeah, after after all the woes in chapter twenty-three, he says, "Oh Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, that city that killed the kills the prophets and stones those sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood." under her wings, and you would not see your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is you, come to the name of the Lord. So he, he mourns the destruction of Jerusalem before it happens. Um, and then also, what's the ironic about this is, this is what the Jewish leaders said should happen. And the, the parable for from uh, the previous uh, time you you talked uh, on this, you had this episode. Um, you have the, he asked them, uh, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants, those tenants who killed the son? And they said to him, so this is the chief priests and the Pharisees saying to him, they will, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out their vineyard to other tenants. Well, uh, so it isn't just talking about the kingdom of, of God, but also like the temple. Um, I mean, it, it, you can't really separate the kingdom of God from the temple, um, but the temple is no longer, it's no longer the kingdom, of, like the central point of the kingdom of God. Christ is, because God has become man. He's no longer needs to dwell in the temple. But also these, these Jewish leaders have rejected him. So, uh, yeah, he's talking about an historical event uh, that the Jews themselves, uh, I mean, they witnessed against themselves by saying that this was what should happen. Jesus mourns about happening, and it did happen. And uh, it shows, too, like, if you if you look into Judaism, um, Judaism today is a very different religion than even what the Jews had back then, because they don't have the temple. So they reject Christ, and their temple is destroyed. And that is, um, that's very much of, of affects what their religion is today. Uh, and they've had to do a lot of work, work with oral tradition and things like that to, to have a religion. And, of course, it's a false religion, uh, as Jesus says. But, um, yeah, so that's, that's what that's all about. And it's a, it's a terrifying thing, but it shows God is very gracious. He loves us. He wants us to turn. He wants us to be saved. But judgment is real. And we should look at the destruction of Jerusalem and say, well, if the... Uh, if, you know, the natural branches can be lopped off of the tree, so can those that so the wild ones have been grafted on. So, um, you know, uh, take heed lest you you fall. Yeah, I I don't I don't know that, and I'm, I'm speaking for myself. I don't I don't know that I I have always fully appreciated just how significant of an event that really was in in AD seventy, the destruction of the temple, and and maybe the reason for that is that the event itself is not recorded in real time in scripture like i mean the, the crucifixion of jesus is recorded for us there we're going to get to it here in a few chapters in matthew's gospel there's no chapter and verse where the event happens as it occurs in ad 70 but it's it really is all over the place in the gospels particularly in holy week as something that is being talked about ahead of time so not not happening right then but something that will happen and i i I don't know. I, I'm just not sure. And, may, and maybe that's that's what what you were just saying, Pastor Preuss, is, is the way that we need to, to think about this as Christians. As and that's how Paul preaches it in, in Romans 11. I think is, is where you were referring there. That that if if this can happen to those who were a part of the vine from the beginning, then then take heed lest lest you fall. Is that? I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe this is something that I'm unique in. But it, the the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 is just not something I think about too much in in terms of my Christian faith, but it's, it's the here a lot. And as we're seeing it in Holy week, is, is that the primary use for us as we think about that as Christians, Pastor Preuss? Um, I think so. I mean, it, I think it's a very significant thing. Yeah. One is a warning. Uh, take heed lest you fall. I mean, you, you like in, in Matthew 24, Jesus kind of strings, um, the, when all the talks of the, the end times, he kind of strings the end times with the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, so you, I mean, it's, it's it's very much a type, I think, of of the final judgment, and this is something that we should be thinking about as Christians, and knowing that our salvation does not rest in some building, uh, uh, it does not rest in man-made rules, 
but it rests in Jesus Christ himself who, who came for the salvation of all mankind. Uh, the, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is, a, is an incredibly important uh, point. I mean, I, I'm embarrassed by how little I knew about it until I, I was a bit, how, how old I was when I really um, paid attention to it. Uh, but, I mean, it's very, it's important for apologetics in defending the scripture. So most higher critics will say that all the, all the Gospels and anything that hints at the destruction of Jerusalem was written after 70 AD. Um, I believe that all of the Gospels were written, or except for maybe John's uh, Gospel, were written before 70 AD. And one of the reasons why uh, I think that besides the fact that I think there's other historical evidence, but if this were pseudepigraphal writing, uh, or not pseudepigraphal, uh, yeah, like false, like if, if this weren't actually written by people who knew Jesus, were just made up, and were in after 70 AD, and they wanted Jesus to, to prove that Jesus made some prophecy, they would give a lot more details, I think. Um, and I think like the apostles would have written more about it. But instead, it's like it's kind of like what you say. You don't even realize how much it's it's, it's there, and then when you 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 read more about the history, you're like holy cow, Jesus prophesied of this a bunch of times, and uh, the apostles like they all knew about this. Um, so I think it's, it's a very interesting thing, and I think it's something that we can kind of shove in the face of these higher critics who try to say that the Bible wasn't written by the people that by uh, who we believe it's written by, uh, or that these people weren't actual eyewitnesses. And just say, well, look at this. Um, oh, this and this was written before, before uh, it happened. And Jesus clearly predicted the destruction of Jerusalem a number of times. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFU. We're looking at Matthew chapter 22, the first part of it. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Monday, March 16th, we're looking at Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 22, with Pastor James Preuss of Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, we're in the second scene of the parable now, the we talked about the destruction of the Jerusalem scene and the, the destruction of the murderers. He's, the king has destroyed their city. Then he sends his servants out to invite more people. And he sends them out to invite anybody and everybody, both good and bad, we read in verse 10. What's that a picture of? Well, it, it shows that God wants all people to come to uh, to come to the faith. I mean, for all, for God, there is no distinction for all sin fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God before to be the propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Um, good and bad, I mean, it's everyone. There's no, there's no one who is not meant to receive the invitation. Um, I, I know, you know, we, we have to be careful with how we talk about uh you know, the rejection of the Jews and then the gospel turning to the Gentiles, because it's never a complete rejection of the Jews. Um, this is more, this is God emphasizing uh, grace. Uh, yes, historically the Jews did get rejected because they rejected God. Um, they were the first ones to receive the gospel and they rejected them. But th- there's never been a time where there were no Jewish Christians. And in the early church, when they're talking about, like in uh, Acts 18.6, when St. Paul says, well, he rubs his, his, the, the dust off his feet when talking to the Jews, so, well, from now on, we go to the Gentiles. But the, the, the Jews are never completely cut off. And as you mentioned before, uh, Romans 11, like you, that, that um, discussion that St. That Paul has in, from Romans 9 through 11, 
where he discusses, you know, the relationship between the Jews and the and the Gentiles, and you know, what about the Jews? You know, are, uh, and he's, but he but he still wants them to come back, and so does God. Um, so both good and evil, um, I think, show. I mean, all all are sinners, uh, but I think it shows uh, something about the church that it's meant for all people. That there isn't a class of people who's not called. Um, and, and perhaps also it shows that within the church on earth, you're also going to have hypocrites and, and things like that, which I think he kind of shows with that guy with the without the garment. Um, the God is so uh, generous and so eager to bring people into the church that he'll even, it seems like he's even bringing in some tares, right? Like you have the parable of the, of the field that has the tares growing with the, the weeds, and he doesn't pull them out yet. So um, I'm not saying that the, the, there's one Holy Christian Apostolic Church. The church is made up of only believers. Only believers, only saints are within the church. But visibly on earth, you have people who appear to be in the church, as in they are members of, of congregations, they perhaps are active, um, but they aren't actual Christians because they don't believe. Uh, and I think that's shown with the, the, man, the man with the garment. So uh, God is generous, and he fervently desires all people to be saved. He wants his wedding feast filled. And I think that is the, the message here. Get out there. And it also shows, you know, with the election, we, you know, we've talked about election before, and there's more about election here. Election doesn't mean that there's no work involved I mean, conversion, I mean, we believe that we're, we're monergists. We believe God is the one who converts us. We're not the ones who convert ourselves. But God uses us, right? Nobody's converted to the faith without feeling. Um, I mean, your your soul is twisted and, you know, it's like barf up its sins. I mean, uh, there's uh, thought involved. The Holy Spirit works you. And uh, there there is a sense of urgency. Uh, we should behave as if it, we should urgently be proclaiming the gospel and urgently inviting people to come to church and to hear the gospel and to believe uh, and not just behave as, oh, well, if they're elect, they're elect. Well, yeah, okay, yeah, that's true. But God says, invite all of them. <laughs> Get out there. So I think we should, uh, we, we should behave that way. Right, yeah, a matter of urgency, certainly, but not one of, of panic, or not one of, of worry, I would say. I mean, it's, yeah. it is God's work, right? So we, there, there's a difference between work and worry. There's a difference between urgency and, and panic. This is the work that God has given us to do. So we go do it, trusting in the promise that he is the one that is actually at, at work, doing, doing the electing, doing the, the saving, doing the converting through what he has given to do. And I, that's, I think that is an important thing to keep in mind, an important distinction to make urgency but not, not panic, right? This is God's work, and he will do that work. So get out there and do it. Yeah. So, so Pastor Preuss, then take us into this, this man that, that's got, he's there, but he's got no, no wedding garment. And I like the connection you were making to Jesus' previous parable uh, concerning the, the wheat and the weeds. I, I think all, all through Matthew 13, there's, there's other connections we can make. The parable of the sower, right? You see the, you see the sower casting the seed everywhere in, in both, to both good and bad. In, in the end of the chapter, you've got the parable of the net where both good and bad fish are gathered. And, and Jesus says it's at the end, right, when the judgment happens. So it, it seems now that the king is in his, his wedding hall and he's looking at the guests. This is a picture of, of the final judgment. And here is one without the wedding garment. Take us into this scene. Well, it shows that you can only be saved through Christ. And uh, though, I mean, people, uh, I've heard the saying, um, you know, you'll, you'll be surprised who's in heaven, you'll be surprised who's not. I really like that saying so much um, because I think it can be abused. I mean, it, You'll hear people who will say, oh, well, church is just filled with hypocrites. And they can have act as if like, you're a better Christian if you don't go to church and things like that. I mean, it's filled with, um, like, America is really filled with that talk. And I think it's, it's bad. Uh, Christians should go to church. They should hear the Word of God. You shouldn't try to not, be, uh, to not look like a Christian. 
Um, I mean, if you're a Christian, you're not going to be able to keep your light from shining. So just because someone is going to church every Sunday and is volunteering and being helpful and speaking well of people doesn't mean that they're a Pharisee who is shouting off and showing off their good works. Um, I mean, they're good work. you're going to be able to see their good works. I mean, you, you, even, if you, even if they're not uh, proclaiming it, um, you know, from on the street corner. Um, but that being said, there are going to be people who are unbelievers in the church. They're, they, they have a different motive. They don't trust in Christ. Uh, I've heard, I think a lot of people have heard there's a, they'll say, oh, well, when you go to a wedding, um, the, the, the rich person, they provide a wedding garment. You're supposed to wear the wedding garment that provides you. I think that's made up. It's one of those like things that people will say to try to make a point in a sermon or a Bible study. And then, but then when you actually look for a source that teaches that, you can't find anything. And then when you think about it, how expensive, how outrageously rich would you have to be to, uh, to provide a garment for everyone that you invited to your son's wedding? Um, so I don't think that this was ever a practice, or at least it wasn't a regular practice. If it actually did happen historically, it would be very few because you'd have to be very, very rich to do it. Um, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they were like, you know, cheap garments that, you know, people would provide, but I don't think so. But that doesn't mean that, uh, that God doesn't do it. Uh, God certainly does provide the garment. Uh, he is outrageously rich. And uh, that garment is Christ. And we see that in Galatians chapter 3, that um, uh, you are all sons of God through faith for everyone who has been baptized in Christ has put on Christ. We're clothed in Christ's righteousness. If you're not closed within Christ's righteousness, you are not safe. It doesn't matter if you are uh, the chairwoman of the LWML. It doesn't matter if you're the head elder. It doesn't matter if you've gone to church every Sunday of your life. It doesn't matter if you tithe and give uh, $10,000 to your local congregation a year. Um, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, that he is your Savior, and if you do not repent of your sins and believe in Christ, as the only one who has provided salvation for you, then you have taken off that garment that God has, is giving you, which can only be worn through faith in Christ. Uh, so we shouldn't get distracted with busy work, and we shouldn't think that we're getting to heaven by our good works. Um, we go to heaven by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Right. So, so even if even if there was no custom about kings providing wedding garments which which as you said there's there's probably not really any evidence of that as a historical practice when it comes to god's wedding feast though he does give this garment and and it would be utter foolishness to take that garment off given to you in christ the, the baptism you received you put on christ you, you've got this imagery of clothing throughout the new testament particularly it's in the old testament too i think of of zechariah chapter 3 uh, Joshua the high priest and his dirty clothes that are then removed and he's, he's given clean clothes to wear by the angel of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ pre-incarnate right I mean so this image of, of clothing being being clothed in Christ is all over the New Testament and and here is one who who does not have that clothing who is not wearing Christ by faith who who's trying to wear his own righteousness rather than the righteousness that is his by faith in Jesus Christ and he is is cast out into the outer darkness, the, the judgment that, that is there for those who do not believe in Christ. And Jesus wraps this parable up in verse 14. He says, many are called, but few are chosen. How is that a, a fitting summary of this parable, Pastor Preuss? Well, it's, it's fitting because you can only be saved um, if, you, if you are elect. Uh, you... We cannot, by our own reason and strength, believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord, and come to him. The Holy Spirit calls us by the gospel, enlightens us with his gifts. Um, we, it, it, faith is a gift from God. Um, just there, There's another, uh, Isaiah 61, 10, it's a beautiful passage, too, about, you know, I, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, for he has clothed me in the garment of salvation. So uh, there's all, both the Old and the New Testament speaks of this. But um, this, yeah, many are called, but few are chosen. It is talking about election. God desires all people to be saved, but not all people are saved. Uh, we've talked about this before. It's, it's a mystery. We don't know why, how that works, uh, but we do not say that God uh, chooses to, uh, to condemn anyone from eternity. 
that he desires all people to be saved, but only those who are elect are saved. Uh, the word many means all. That's he, He's referring to all people, kind of like how Jesus says in it Matthew 20, 28, or something like that, uh, uh, you know, the son, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gives his, ransom, his life as a ransom for all. So uh, God certainly does desire all people to be saved, but only those who are elect are uh, are saved. And uh, we thank God for that. It is gospel, because it means that uh, your salvation is in God's hands. And you know that you're elect, not by your work, but by looking at Christ, looking at the gospel, and seeing God's desire to save you. So Christians should never doubt whether they're elect. Uh, and if you doubt whether you're elect, then look to Christ and see that he died for all people. You're called. Believe that you're elect. Don't doubt it. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the beautiful gospel. Look to Christ. He is the assurance of your salvation. How do I know that I'm saved? Christ died for you. Right. That that's how you know that you're saved. So so Pastor Price, that that is comforting to Christians, but but generally this this parable it seems functions more as a warning, a warning to those who heard it at that time, the rulers in that first half. And then I think it stands as a warning to us as well, particularly in the second half in this this matter of the the wedding garment and the man who who takes it off. Uh, what how do you how would you summarize the application of this parable for us today? Well it, it's uh, yeah. It's not just about the Jewish leaders back in the first century. It's about us today. The, the invitation is still going out. And that's the kind of the funny thing about the whole wedding feast. Uh, when is it? Well, it's now. Uh, Jesus Christ has uh, been crucified, and he's risen, and he is prepared for us to eat and drink spiritually through faith in the word even to eat it, uh, eat his body and blood uh, sacramentally in the, the sacrament where we receive its benefits through faith, it is prepared now. And you notice the excuses these people do, these people give. It's just they're concerned about earthly things, and that's what people are doing now. So when Christians don't go to church because, you know, they have work to do, or they have travel, they have vacation, the kid has a sport, has to kick a ball around for a little bit, um, because they, you know, go out drinking, uh, we're at a party. All these different excuses we have. You know, oh, we have guests over. These are terrible excuses, and uh, we really should have a little bit more shame. Uh, we should repent of this. We should be in church every Sunday. Uh, we shouldn't be making excuses. Um, because you're only saved through faith in the gospel and, hear, and hearing the invitation. How do you how do you accept the invitation? It's not like you drive to like some kingdom somewhere and you know show up on some night. Uh, and I mean, you, you go to church and hear the word, and you should be doing this every day. We should be hearing the word of God every day. You should have devotions with your family. Um, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And when Christ actually offers His own body and blood that was given and shed for you on the cross for you to eat and to drink. And then you say, oh, well, I have something else to do. Uh, and then you look at how these people were treated. He destroys their city. And he casts them out to the outer darkness. I mean, this is talking about eternal damnation. So, I mean, I, I can't emphasize enough. Young parents who go to church once a month, stop doing that. Go every Sunday. Because your children are going to go less than you. And uh, you'll be accountable for that. So, yeah, there's a lot of law here. I mean, I get a little bit worked up because it's the frustration I have as a pastor. I don't know what people are doing not coming to church every Sunday. And the people who come to church every Sunday, it's not like they don't have lives. It's not like they don't have jobs. It's not like that they couldn't really use a, a morning sleep in. But we should be taking this more seriously. The world is very evil. And, uh, and our hearts will betray us. And you can't, don't think that you're, I mean, don't think that you're just going to remain a Christian um, when you are not hearing the word of God, because Christians hear the voice of their shepherd. So, yeah, it's a very, it's a very serious thing. So, uh, if you have, uh, you know, whoever's listening to this, I mean, if you have loved ones who aren't going to church regularly, tell them about how important it is. They should be in church every week, unless, like, you know, you have the coronavirus or something. Uh, uh, we, we should be worshiping our Lord. We should be accepting the invitation. Um, and, and not just assume that, oh, well, well I can do it next week. Because you might not. 
Baby Jesus yeah. is going to come Sunday afternoon. That's how right, we should right, think. I, right, and I mean, just the, the why, why would you not go, right? I mean, just multiple times, and I think you, you mentioned this at the very beginning of our conversation, Pastor Preuss, everything is ready. It's all been done. It's all here for you as a gift. Where, where, where else, where else would you be? This is this is the place to receive the gifts of the King. It's it's all here. It's all for for you, pa- Pastor Boyce. Man, oh, we could we could talk about this for the rest of the time. But I want to. <laughs> we've got about eight minutes <laughs> left here, and and so okay. I want to I want to make sure we we talk about now what happens. So Jesus finishes his parable told against these religious leaders. He's, he's told a string of them. They know he's talking against them, but they're not going to go down without a fight. And what we see now is, is they're going to line up one after the other to, to take a swing at Jesus, to try to trap him. First in line are the Pharisees and the Herodians. Matthew tells us right away, this is not an innocent confrontation, This or not an innocent question. This is a confrontation. They're trying to trap Jesus. They come at him with a question about paying taxes. What's the trap that they're laying for him? And how does Jesus skillfully maneuver out of it? Yeah. Well, exactly. They, uh, they want to arrest Jesus, and they can't because the crowds support Jesus. So they're trying to somehow get an edge. And here, they're trying to get Jesus to uh, say something that would either put him on the side of Caesar so that the zealots who want to break away from Rome are going to say, oh, what a terrible person. He's for Caesar. He's just a puppet of the, of the Romans. We're not going to follow him. And, I mean, even Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot, you know, Simon the Zealot. Um, and then also, uh, but then if he then goes against Caesar, then they're able to say, hey, let's go to Pilate and tell him uh, that this, this guy is telling people not to pay taxes. And that now you can get Pilate involved, and you can get the Roman government involved to go, go and kill him. So they're trying to get him killed. And Jesus answers it, of course, perfectly. He says, well, show me the coin for the tax. They give him the denarius. He looks at it, and he says, well, whose, whose face is that? Whose inscription is that? Caesar's. Well, give to, uh, give to Caesar things that are Caesar's, and to God things that are God's. And what he shows is that all authority comes from God, and God has actually given Caesar authority. So he's saying, all right, God says pay your taxes. So yeah, pay your taxes. Don't worry about that. But you have responsibility to God too. So what does it mean to pay uh, to to God what is God? Well, that is your life, your soul, your everything, uh, your, your your faith, trusting in Him. Not that you offer your faith as an offering to God, but it, He's talking about faith in God, which involves handing your whole life over to Him. So He He ruins their ability. Then they're not even they're not able to. Uh, it completely falls flat. They fall flat on their faces. It, it, instead of getting the crowd to turn against them or giving ammo to the Romans to come and arrest them as some, some sort of zealot, the crowds marvel, and Caesar has no, and Pilate have no reason to be upset about this. But you'll notice they use this against them anyway. And, and you'll remember how they say, well, this man making make himself king, which means he's against Caesar. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. So it doesn't matter what Jesus says. They're going to lie about him to Pilate anyway to get him crucified. Uh, uh, but again, it shows Jesus is in control. Uh, and also, he teaches us a very important part about our position as citizens of countries, that we should recognize the authority that God has placed over us. But uh, even more, we should be paying attention to the authority, uh, uh, the spiritual authority that is over us. And we should be hearing the Word of God, submitting to it, repenting of our sins, and, and, and accepting the invitation, meaning believing in Jesus Christ and receiving the, the, gifts, that he, the gifts that he gives us, uh, salvation, eternal life, and the sacrament, and baptism, and, and absolution, and in the preaching of the Word. So take us, take, we've got still about four and a half minutes here, Pastor Preuss. Take us in, in more than to how, how this comes to us today. What do we, what do, we do with these, these words of Jesus? Give to God the things that are God's, or sorry, Caesar to things that are the things that are Caesar's to God the things that are God's. I mean, this isn't some sort of like compartmentalization that here's my my life as a citizen, here's my life as a Christian. They're they're two separate things. They don't intersect at all. I mean, how do how do we live in this reality that Jesus gives us here? Yeah, that's an excellent question because um, the left hand and right hand kingdom of God has been caricatured 
to something that is incredibly devilish. Um, this whole separation of church and state, I mean, that's not even what it's talking about. Uh, God, it's, all authority comes from God. So God has authority. So is the United States government sinning by saying that states aren't allowed to define marriage between one man, one woman? Of course they are. Well, it's not separation of church and state. It doesn't matter. There's no authority except that which comes from God. God's the one who made marriage, and he told the government to manage it. Uh, is the government sinning by permitting uh, doctors to, or so-called doctors, to kill unborn babies? Of course they are. Uh, can governments do wrong by having illegal wars? Of course they can. Uh, can just because you're doing something legal, can you sue your brother and say, well, it's legal, and this is just a left-hand uh, uh, kingdom thing? No. If you sue your brother, you're going to go to hell. I mean, this is awful. So uh, we should be very, uh, very uh, careful and know that as Christians, we're always Christians in the left hand and the right hand kingdom. And the reason, and when we pay our taxes, we are loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, and that's what we do with everything. So. Give to Caesar things that are Caesar's. Why? Because God says so. And if Caesar tells you to do something that's against God's authority, then he has no authority to command that of, the, of you, and you must obey God rather than man. But everything we do, when we vote, when we pay taxes, when we pay our traffic fines, we're doing it as children of God and, and in obedience to God. Uh, and in the right-hand kingdom, we're talking about eternal things. Uh, we're talking about repentance, forgiveness of sins, and things like that. So we have to be careful that we don't create a, a uh, I, don't, I don't want to use the politically correct term, but like, you know, a, a, a God with like a, with a severed brain. God doesn't have a severed brain. Uh, when he r- rules over the government, this is the same God who rules over the church. And we Christians don't, shouldn't behave as if we're severed. Yes, we have a different role in the state as citizens, as we do in the church, uh, I mean, in the sense of, like, if you're a judge, you don't just forgive someone who says he's sorry, you have to punish him. Um, but judges are still supposed to be Christians. And there are certain things that even judges would have to say, I can't do this, even if the government says I must, because God says I can't. Um, and uh, and I think it, it does make it very difficult to be a Christian in an ever-growing, godless uh, government, um, because the government's going to tell judges and lawyers and doctors uh, and pastors to do things uh, that is against God's will, and that they'll have to say no, and will put them at, at odds with Caesar. But but for the Christian in that in that place, then take heart, for you are covered in in Christ's righteousness, and and living in that righteousness. You have the eternal life. That's that's the parable of the wedding feast in, in its comforting aspect here. God has elected you in Christ. Take take heart. No matter what Caesar may throw at you, you you belong to Christ. Pastor James Preuss is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 22. Pastor Preuss, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.